It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello, you're listening to The Future of Media Explained with me, Press Gazette, Editor-in-Chief Dominic Ponsford. And this week... We're learning all about the future of music journalism. And joining me to discuss the future of music, journalism, and publishing, we have Press Gazette's associate editor, William Turville. Hi, Will. Hello, Dom. So, music journalism. I thought we could start off by... I've stolen this, actually, from a well-known history podcast, but all writers are thieves. So what do we know about music journalism? I'm going to kick off and let you fill in the blanks. I'm thinking, like a lot of journalism, used to be perhaps more buoyant business-wise than it is now. I'm thinking 70s and 80s, NME, music maker, selling hundreds of thousands of copies. Into the 2000s, things got a bit hairy, like they did for everyone with the competition from broadband, the internet. And then subsequently, things have got even more hairy, perhaps, for kind of music, journalism that writes about music than it has for other areas because the music industry has been so disrupted as well with records and CDs becoming less popular and streaming platforms disrupting everything. Is that fair? Yeah, sounds about right, doesn't it? Do you buy any music magazines? It's been a while. I used to be a fan of Kerrang! Yeah. and magazines in that genre. But yeah, I'm not a buyer of music magazines anymore. And, mm. I, and I don't think there are that many around anymore, are there? I'm trying to, I was looking at the, the ABCs and the only magazines I can find in the kind of music category, classic rock, still going, Mojo. Still going. They're the only two I can see. I think there are some more, aren't there? There's Kerrang! you still see around, I think. But it's definitely, in terms of print, it's definitely declined. And I guess what I felt thought was quite interesting when you were talking about music journalism there was you were talking about music magazines, which obviously were a huge part of it. But then I suppose there are other form of, forms of music journalism that you might say are still around today. With the interview today, we're obviously talking about digital music journalism. I wonder what's become of TV music journalism if there ever was such a big thing. We're talking to Holly Bishop, aren't we, who's the Chief Operating Officer, Chief Commercial Officer of NME. NME Networks, yeah. I'm fascinated to find out how they're getting on because they have had a really sort of tough transition, haven't they? And I, and I think 
when I think about NME, I think about, this is before my time, but Alan Smith was the famous editor in the early 70s who took a kind of bit of a trade title for the music industry that was losing the battle with Melody Maker and turned it into something really hip and cool and counter-cultural, like writers like Julie Birchall, Tony Parsons. I can remember in my lifetime, it was always seen as the thing that was a real tastemaker, wasn't it? It was like the enemy was deciding what was cool and what wasn't. And as someone who was very much enjoyed heavy metal, <laughs> I'd still do. Enemy wasn't really for me because it was much cooler than that. It was for the people that listened to the Smiths and, and other things like that. Oh, interesting, Dom. I didn't realise you were a heavy metaler. Yeah, I think that's broadly right. It has had quite a tough time. So it was, just to give you a little bit of a potted history, it was founded 71 years ago. I believe it was under a different name. Then it became New Musical Express, then it became NME. At its peak, its peak was actually back in the 1960s, according to an independent article that I read. So it then recorded a circulation of more than 300,000. And then between then and 2014, its circulation fell to around 15,000, so really quite small by that stage. And then briefly, they it was relaunched by Time Inc. as a, as a free sheet, where its circulation again rocketed up to 300,000 because it was being handed out for free. Ultimately, that was not a business model that was working for them. So since 2018, it's been a digital-only product with the occasional print magazine or newspaper released. For, co- for commercial purposes, I believe. I, and I had a look at the enemy website just before we came on. I saw they got Metallica with their lead story. Yeah, I saw that as well. Yeah, so not bad, not a bad interview to get. Yeah, it's good. I thought like back in the day, they probably never would, they wouldn't have had Metallica on there because I think heavy metal wasn't seen as being quite as quite as hip and cool. Yeah, I think with the online transition they've had, they're obviously going for a, they're trying to get the, as large an audience as possible, and so yeah, they've branched out. Music-wise, they cover all kinds of music now. I think not the traditional rock music that you would associate with them in the past. And they also do more stuff now on TV, films, and gaming. Gaming's a big area of focus for them. And they think they all tie in together and, and form an interesting area for them to cover. Ah, okay. So as we know, at Press Gazette, if you're in journalism, which is an industry that's being disrupted by technology and you're covering an industry which itself is being disrupted by technology, that can be pretty, put you in a quite tough position. Although Press Gazette's doing well at the moment because it's actually quite an interesting time to cover all that disruption, isn't it? But I just wonder how the heck NME's doing because people don't physically buy and sell music anymore, do they? They've got a relationship with a streaming company that they might change every... I don't even know if people do change streamers. Maybe they change it once every five years or something. And there may be a few people who haven't who've yet to discover streaming. And there's a few people who buy vinyl, but it must be quite difficult to turn a buck when there's not much physical buying and selling of things going on. I suppose there's live music as well, isn't there? Yeah, I think that's all true. And something you mentioned earlier also made me think that one one of my key questions going into this was you talked about Enemy being this magazine that people would go to discover new music or to find out more about artists that they really liked. And I think one of the reasons they've been particularly hard hit by the rise of the internet and by social media is that people don't need a weekly magazine to find new music. If they want to find new music, they can go on endless social media platforms 
and find it themselves, which is probably more rewarding. And also every musician, every big musician has some kind of a, a social media presence. Every small musician has some kind of a social media presence. So what's the purpose of NME at a time when people can discover their own music and also can get very intimate access to artists? It's, it challenges their original business model and their original appeal, I think. So that's why I was quite interested to, to get into this and find out exactly what NME is today, how it makes money, and what kind of future it has. Brilliant. Look, let's hear from our interviewee, Holly Bishop, Chief Operating Officer of NME. How, how did you kick off the interview, Will? I start off by just asking her to explain to our listeners who may have lost track to explain what exactly NME is in 2023. So I guess from an NME perspective, you know, many will remember it in its newspaper form, but actually not many of our current audience, I would say. You know, NME, we liken it to the eternal teenager. So with that brings new audiences decade after decade and actually the face of the brand has needed to change in order to reflect the changing attitudes and tastes of those audiences so today in 2023 enemy yeah, is an online media brand and actually i think it's almost transcended what it is to be a media brand we are now a multifaceted music powerhouse with sort of discovery at the heart of everything that we do it's still very much about discovery and playing to our roots of the new musical express and really making that commitment to new music all year round, but across new channels and platforms. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? How long have you been working with the enemy brand and in what form? So I began my career, gosh, it's nearly 20 years ago now. It doesn't feel that long ago. I was desperate to start a career in media and outreach to as many agencies as possible begging for any gig that may come up in that space. And as it happened, a role came up working on the reception desk of my local radio station down in South Devon and took the gig. It was just a week-long temporary contract. And actually, sitting on that reception desk was brilliant because I was at the centre of all the happenings in the radio station and made it my mission over that week to build as many connections as I possibly could. And years later, I was still within that radio group and had forged a career. It's now global as we know it today. So yeah, hugely exciting and large media business. And I eventually made my way out of the sunny shores of South Devon and up the M4 and took various roles across Wiltshire, Oxfordshire, Berkshire, until I finally landed in the bright lights of London. And actually at that point, moved across into publishing. So this was about 10 years ago. My first job in publishing was working at IPC Media and working across the men and music titles, which at the time included Enemy alongside Nut Magazine, which some may remember. And actually it's wild to look back across the last decade and think about the changing shape of those brands. Obviously, Nuts is no more. At the time I started working on NME, it was a paid-for newsstand proposition and still very much in that indie space that it had become famed for in its latter paid-for years. And across that, across the last decade, I've seen 
the various changes. I moved around over those years and spent a few stints across some different publishing brands, all within the bigger IPC business, but always had an affection for the music team. It was where all the fun was happening and also where it felt like the cool stuff was happening in that publishing group. What was quite a traditional Mm. publisher network was like this incubated unit of fun and progression within the business. And I'd worked across partnership teams and bigger commercial roles and in the latter years took on the responsibility for all of the commercial stuff on Enemy and Uncut. And in that time saw the brand move into the free space and then onto an online-only proposition, which actually was pretty close to the brands being acquired into our now home. So at that time, I was in this lead commercial role and met with Meng, our group CEO, and he must have seen some potential because I I was able to take on a much bigger role, terrifyingly, and I didn't probably know a fraction of what I know now. But it was very much a steep learning curve with a global pandemic shoved in the middle of it, which again, accelerated a lot of learning. But for me, I feel like the last few years have been a really exciting time for the brand. We've moved out of being in a traditional publisher ecosystem and into this music business, our wider group business, Caldecott Music Group, Every brand that sits in our business is a music business, and that's very exciting. It means that we can benefit from the wider group brands and vice versa. It's a really exciting, vibrant space to be in, and Mm. yeah, just very much more of a home than it would be perhaps sat in a publisher group where your stable mates are horse and hound and Marie Claire and all great brands in their own right, but There are no real synergies with the enemy and uncut brands. So now in a business where we sit alongside those music businesses, but also in our media group, guitar.com and music tech, there are so many synergies that can be found across the group. That's a really exciting place for us. And also the opportunity for us to drive efficiencies that are very different to the efficiencies that you would perhaps find in a publisher. So that sounds like a fascinating time to have worked at Enemy. Obviously, it's really, I've got lots of questions about the business as it currently stands. That's really interesting. But also being involved with Enemy at such a, an interesting time in its history where you had to, where it went free and then it went online only. The great if you could just explain what the thinking was there and what I'm sure you'd say that it's in its best form ever now roughly but obviously it's not ideal to if you're if you're running a magazine you ideally want to keep it as a magazine and have a million people paying for the magazine what was the what were the trends driving the decision to go free and then the decision to go online only obviously a few key drivers to taking the brand free, one being the declining newsstand circulation, the obvious one, but also the changing tastes in audience. We were seeing a shift in perhaps less tribal followings, more of a genre fluid attitude to music. And I think that was really reflected and that change sort of shifted exponentially for the brand when we moved into the free space. One, because you're trying to appeal to a much wider audience the nature of it being free and more accessible means that you can legitimately open open the doors to more genres of music but also reflecting the changing tastes in music fans and actually that becoming less tribal you would look at perhaps music fans and gaming fans and film fans all being these individual 
groups of people, but actually they're one and the same. And as a brand, if you take it beyond music and breaking what's new and what's next, actually extending that out to the wider world of pop culture is super interesting, not only for the brand, but for our audience and playing to their tastes and what they want to hear about. And that was facilitated, that shift was facilitated by us moving into the free space. We'd already, from an online perspective, started to widen widen the coverage in terms of music. That free sheet model allowed us to test it. And it was a success, but hugely costly to deliver magazines at that scale, week in, week out. Also, not hugely sustainable, chucking out all of those magazines and and actually it's reflected in the shifts we've seen particularly in the UK market those free sheets have declined there aren't as many publications in circulation but it was the start of a much broader editorial remit which then in recent years we've been able to jump on and accelerate in in the sort of period in which we were in the sort of the covid era as we'll call it we were able to launch enemy in Australia, in Asia, but also across new verticals. So creating a dedicated gaming vertical within the brand, giving film and TV more focus as well. And I think that it's just a natural, a natural progression of the brand that is well received. Gaming has been one of our biggest growth areas, not only in terms of audience, but also revenue opportunity. And actually it doesn't have to be a dirty word anymore doing sort of commercial deals, actually the right brand partnerships accelerate the brand further. Those collaborations are so key to us in 2023. We've just come off the back of our C23 partnership. We worked with Bose to relaunch the iconic C86 mixtape, which is just crazy and has been Again, a huge learning curve because the last time these mixtapes were put out, there wasn't such a thing as DSPs and we didn't have as many rights headaches to contend with. But it's been super fun and has definitely paid off to bring those new artists into the fore and give them that platform to be able to share their music with the backing of the vote of confidence from a brand like Enemy and Bose obviously being such a brilliant partner in terms of synergies and their commitment to emerging talent too. But yeah, it's it's been a hugely exciting time. And on the commercial side, how does Enemy Networks make revenue? What, where, what are the different streams? So from a revenue perspective, obviously partnerships are core to what we do we don't have the sort of as much traditional advertising revenue as perhaps a big publisher would have we don't have big dedicated spot advertising sales teams that's not really what we're about yes we do that stuff and it is bread and butter but really the area of focus is those you know iconic brand partnerships that elevate both us and the partner brand that we're working with that allow us to do some great stuff in market that hopefully surprises and delights audiences and does a great brand job for both partners. We have affiliate revenues and the stronger the brand position and our equity in terms of search, the greater those perform. And actually that's where Enemy being at the forefront of change in publishing has played to our advantage. Being one of the early adopters of, of .com has meant that we grew that equity online early to six was the launch of enemies website and we've made huge gains that definitely benefit us nearly 20 years later 
And I was looking at some of the stats earlier, actually, and looking at our early inroads into new tech. We gave away our first MP3 single back in 2001, and we are giving away free music today with our mixtape. It's all coming full circle, but just in different ways. Although we had, we did actually produce a cassette for the C23 mixtape and vinyl mixing, mixing the old with the new mm. vinyl. You could speak for days on the resurgence of that and this affection for those traditional platforms but whole another topic hi i'm anoush and i host the new statesman podcast twice a week we get under the skin of westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next we interview politicians policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines Plus, hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. How difficult in general is it for a brand like NME to stay relevant when I suppose in 1952 or throughout most of its history it was a window into the world of, of music and musicians that music that music fans couldn't get whereas now there are so many different platforms as social media musicians up and coming or especially established would have a social media presence and they'd give out their own exclusive content that way how does a brand like enemy stay relevant and keep in and keep an audience in that in that kind of environment. Sure. As a music media business, I guess that's what we call ourselves. Creative industries across both sectors, we've seen the impact of social platforms. From a media perspective and speaking with the traditional publisher hat on, they've moved us into a world where anyone can be a content creator and where scale is very much one of the determining factors of success. And on the music side, the pace in which new artists can come through across those platforms is mind-blowing. We have to embrace those changes. We adapt, but also from a journalistic perspective, we have to take the lead on that stuff. We can't get left behind and we have to find our place and our position of relevance for our journalists. They've had to become more adaptable, although the written word will always play a part in journalism. It's no longer front and centre and it's naive to think any differently. It's that short form snackable content that wins out in 2023. Multimedia format, social, that's where our Gen Z audiences are consuming our content. And if you aren't creating that content to that audience, you are going to get left behind. The days of shooting on 16 by 9, going back to the edit suite, and then delivering the content back to the audience perhaps a week later, those days are gone. You're having to react in real time as it happens. And the journalists have to be multifaceted and agile. And we have to think about that when we're reaching for new talent to onboard. And again, the artists, the fact that those artists are blowing up out of different platforms and different places, it's definitely also accelerated that change in sort of taste from an audience perspective. And we need to reflect those diverse tastes with our talent. So looking at how we, how we onboard is also going to be key to ensuring we are leading the charge and surfeiting talent that appeals to our audience, but a diverse audience and a global audience, which again, has shifted. So in back in the paid print 
era, we distributed across Newstand globally. The UK was the dominant market. Now the US is a dominant market for us, but we've launched in Asia, we've launched in Australia. Those are key markets for us too. And we have to reflect those markets with a diverse talent that will also understand those, the nuances and territories. So we've just done a huge sort of recruitment drive in the US. We've got some brilliant new faces joining, joining the enemy networks team, which I'm super excited about because I've gone from having a team that are purely UK based to now having a team of 40 plus. I guess the common thread is they're passionate pop culture obsessives and living all over the world. And COVID has accelerated that change in terms of we don't necessarily have to have journalists based in London, for example, because that's where the office is. We can appeal to talent across the UK and further afield. So the pool is much wider and that's important. While anyone can be a content creator, I think that's also led to quality decline in journalism in general, but actually one that we have very much tried to maintain from an enemy side. We we do stand by the fact that we are a quality publication, albeit you know we're online, but our quality is key to what we do. And yes, the volume has increased, but our quality hasn't declined. And again, editing, sub-editing, all of that is easier to facilitate in a digital age, but it's still that quality of content and that storytelling and all authenticity is still crucial. It's crucial to us in in owning our place and having legitimacy in 2023. Commitment to new music is part of that and probably core to NME's longstanding success. We have always been committed to new music. We have confidence in who we pick and it's not just a once a year nod to who are the ones to watch. For us, it's everything that we do. You look at stories like Billie Eilish and our new music editor at the time was one of the first, uh, her first headline show in London. And it was an audience of just 200. That was three years ago now. And because of that relationship that we built and the part of her story that we that we had, we got an exclusive interview at Glastonbury and it's almost come full circle and that we continue to do so. And the radar for NME is so crucial to ensure that, yes, in a world where any artist can suddenly blow up on a new platform, actually it's also about surfacing those DIY unsigned artists that perhaps haven't broken through, but they've got amazing music and they don't quite know how to tell their story or they have that personality. And I think it's to enemy's credit that we bring those stories to the fore and we help them craft that story which ultimately leads to the long-term success an artist can have a meteoric rise on on a single track on tiktok for example but is there longevity there you know it, it remains to be seen and actually what we do know is an artist making music that's authentic to them that is good music will find a way through particularly when brands like ours are actively seeking it does the enemy brand still resonate with gen z or with teenagers now or and with young musicians i'd say so i'd say so because we are surfacing new talent and we're getting that balance i would say between rising the trends and the big are the big artists the big names that we're also continuing that commitment to new talent for anyone that wants to be wants to be that person in their peer group that is leading the charge in terms of this is what you need to be listening to this these are the films or the tv shows you should be watching these this is the the indie game that you have to be playing for as long as we're surfacing that stuff of course we're relevant and we're we make brave 
choices. We're not always just traffic chasing. It's about authenticity. Our news team delivers the bulk of our content that traffic drives. Our features, content and our reviews. That's not necessarily about chasing hits, chasing impressions on the website. That's about what are we backing? What do we think? What do we think our audience should be consuming? And I think you also have to tread the line between mass consumption and looking at the super fan. And actually, I think we we strike that balance. We've got a news desk that is committed to taking all those news stories out to the vast mass audiences globally. But we also have our absolute expert 360 content creators that lead each of our verticals that are delivering content that yeah, isn't necessarily about the big hitters, but it's about looking at those super fans and what what they're going to find interesting because those are valuable to us. At the moment we talk about our revenues are largely coming from partnerships, but over time, from my perspective, I'd love to see you know that model shift slightly and look at the value that consumers can play in terms of the bottom line contribution to, to the to the business. That's not a shift that can happen overnight. We've seen media brands shut content behind a paywall and not necessarily to great success, but I think where, you know, where we went out is that we focus on content over commerce initially, and we're playing the long game. And that's been one of the hugely exciting changes from our, from moving into our new ownership, not so new now, but moving under our current ownership is that we're not rushing to, to do stuff, to generate revenue. It's more about long-term brand play. How do we deliver the right stuff for artists and how do we deliver the right stuff for the audience? The rest follows. And so the reader revenues, you mentioned possibilities. So it sounds like not a paywall, but what could that potentially look like? You can't give away all the trade secrets. You could see a world in which, you know, a live proposition. So we talked about print and that physical and tangible relationship with the audience. Actually, I still believe that is crucial to a brand's success. We can't just be a content vehicle. You still need to have that relationship. And obviously having a tangible product of some descript is key to keeping that relationship. But does that look like a physical magazine or does that look like live experiences and interacting with your audience in real time in a in a brand environment? So a couple of weeks ago, we launched Enemy Screens, which was the first live IP we've launched in a while. Obviously, we have our Enemy Awards, which is an annual event. But actually, this was about making a commitment to film and TV. And actually, it can span beyond that screens how much stuff do we actually do on screen? So we spend a lot of our time looking at screen. But this is about us surfacing great stuff and offering free experiences to our audience. And that was a an exciting sort of free screening that we offered to audiences in London. But over time, that's something that we'll look to scale out, not only across the UK, but globally as well, to bring that unique experience to our audiences. Check out this latest release the one that we're we're voting for and giving audiences a really cool brand experience which ultimately you can see a world down the line where that added to some really exclusive content drops and a sort of well-rounded offering could be something that consumers would be willing to 
part with cash for. It's not about for us reaching the masses and getting masses to part with money, but actually for me, building out that super fan base and looking at what they would see as valuable and building that out so that it's something that they are willing to pay for. And you've seen it with bands, artists coming through. They they really look to their super fans to to lift them, the fans are their greatest evangelists. So looking at ways in which their brand carries by using those super fans to share that message and advocate for them, which ultimately is what Enemy has always done. We've always advocated for the music that we believe in and that we are backing. Brilliant. Holly, I've just got one more question because I'm conscious we've gone over time. Yep. Who is your favourite musician or band? Dread this question because my music tastes are so embarrassing. <laughs> Gus, it's such a it's such a uh, a broad question because I don't think I have a favourite. My tastes are very far reaching. Yes, I like such a diverse range of music. I mean, I grew up. I think my first album was Britney. Maybe one more time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, that was one of my early albums. I grew up in a house where we sort of listened to a lot of Crowded House, so that that became very much an interest of mine. Obviously, Oasis, Blur. I was very yeah. much a child of of that era, um, or teen teen of that era. And then today, I mean, my taste and all of that stuff. But then. And I try and stay as current as possible, which mm. is made easier through my job. Constantly asking the new music team who I should be listening to. And in the, uh, I, I became a mum 15 months ago, so I've had less time to seek out music. So again, just helps me to be more efficient. Um, I actually really like some of the bands that we um, we showcased on our C23 mixtape. So Jock Strap. Um, absolutely loves. I think they've got a really unique sound and um, yeah, I think definitely ones to watch. I also love the likes of Leon Bridges. I love Sam Fender. Yeah, a real diverse mix. Hard to pick one. Hard to pick one because my playlist is is all over the place. Okay, I'll just put down Britney Spears. <laughs> <laughs> the, defi- oh, the defining album of my youth. <laughs> Baby, one more time. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks for that, Will. Lovely to hear that enemies still in there punching and still doing well by the sounds of things. Okay, final question, Will. What are you listening to then at the moment on your headphones? Oh, great question. Can I have a few minutes to think while you answer the same question? Yeah, I hate to say it. And maybe this is like a bit of an old man thing, but I'm not listening to much pop music at the moment. Mm. But I, am, I am listening to a lot of history podcasts. <laughs> I really enjoy, there's a very good BBC history podcast, which is humorous. And then there, there's the uh, the Rest is History, which is like a sister podcast to The Rest is Politics, which I think is owned by Gary Lineker, which is correct. It's, it's, it's brilliant. If you like hearing about battles where uh, we killed thousands of French people in the, four, in the 14th century it's, with longbows, it's enjoyable. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully they'll give the Press Gazette podcast a shout out when they hear you talking about their <laughs> podcast. Possibly even Gary Lineker might tweet about the Press Gazette podcast. That would be good. What am I listening to? I do li- I do like podcasts as well, but I sh- I'll say something about music. I've got a playlist, which I add to all the time. I'll find out what the latest song I added to that playlist was, and that can answer your question. Okay, so the latest song 
I added was, uh, actually, this was a bit of a blast from the past, but I heard it recently on the radio. So it's uh, Papa Roach's Last Resort, but that's actually quite old now. I like lots of chain smokers have been added recently. And if you're looking for some um, playlist that's quite middle of the road, but nonetheless enjoyable, the King's Coronation playlist on Spotify. I was listening to that at the weekend to get to, to get me in the mood. I'm not feeling too excited about the coronation, but that'll get but you. you are now. Yeah, I am now. Yeah. Brilliant. You've been listening to The Future of Media Explained. Me, Prescott Editor-in-Chief, Dominic Bonsford, Associate Editor, Will Turville, and engineered by Adrian Bradley. Read more about the topics we cover on the podcast on pressgazette.co.uk, where you can also sign up for our email newsletters. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>